listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So listeners, once again, Jeff has brought us a wonderful guest. I'm really excited to have him here. And this is cool because we actually are going to get a sneak preview. So this is the moment, Wayne, where I wish we could roll in that that voiceover, the guy with a really deep voice in a world. In a world. First selling <laughs> has not happened. So anyway, we've got uh, Andy person. Paul with us. Andy is going to be giving us a preview of his uh, soon-to-be best-selling book. I'm ordaining it a best-selling book. Well, no, I, that's great. I'm glad you're giving good wishes for the book. Yes. Absolutely. Sell without selling out, right? Yes. So, Andy, why don't you give us a quick intro to you, you know, and a quick intro to the book, and then we're going to dive into, I guess, your philosophy and some of your frameworks around how to do modern selling. I'll just say that as part of our series on modern selling. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for having me both. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've, I've most people, I don't know, most, a lot of people know me from, from my podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. We just, episode 1005 going out this week or Is something. Is it really 1005? Yeah. 1005, 1006, <laughs> something awesome. like that. So we've been around, been around for a while. A couple different iterations, name changes, and always good to sort of refresh the format. But my podcast, yeah, I started the podcast in 2015. It was acquired by a software company two years ago. Cool. And uh, RingDNA, or Revenue.io, they've rebranded. And so, yeah, we've been doing that. Yeah, spent, gosh, 25 years in a variety of startups, mostly in Silicon Valley and Southern California. And my career started in the computer business are selling you know, roomfuls of equipment, <laughs> computers types, and then started getting beat up by these little personal computers that were showing up. So after losing a, what in today's term would have been a quarter million dollar deal to somebody that said they had an Apple II that could do that same thing, which it couldn't, but it was interesting. So Harbinger of the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I decided to go get a job at Apple. So I worked at Apple in the early days of Apple and then sort of journey through startups and in the wireless and the satellite communication space. And was selling large, complex satellite communication systems, you know, seven, eight, nine-figure deals to big enterprises around the world. And in 2000, started my own company with the express intent to work with. One of the things I'd sort of learned over the years was how do you, as a small, no-name, no-brand-name, no-track-record company as these startups were, how do you go sell really big deals competing against really big companies and do it successfully? And so I started a consulting company to help companies do that. And did that for, gosh, about 12, 13 years until my first book published. And that sort of took me down this track of writing and being an advisor to CEOs and doing my podcast and so on. So sort of ended up where I am today. Should have titled your book, The Midas Touch, instead of what well, you titled. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> and an important know, thing like, that you didn't share, Andy, yes. and it's probably the most important, is you're an avid cyclist. I am. Yeah. So starting about six years or so ago, my wife and I started really getting into it. And yeah, we love doing bike trips. And actually, we're this coming Christmas, we're renting a house in Tucson that's owned by an outfit called The Cycling House, where hmm. we do camps with them, bike camps with them. But it's vacant during the holiday week. So we've hired a couple of guides and we're going to do a bunch of riding in Tucson. That is cool. Yeah, it's a great place to ride. All right. Well, let's jump into this thing because I, I, I really like this phrase, selling out. What does that mean? What do, what do, you, what do you mean, selling out? Because <laughs> everybody has a vision of selling out. And it's, it's usually like, for me, it's, it's uh, Metallica in the one album. <laughs> oh, I, I thought it was becoming a Buckeye fan. That's just a lifelong legacy. <laughs> 
selling out at its heart is selling in a way that's not aligned with who you are, your your values, your characters, your character, you know, how you envision yourself conducting yourself professionally. It's not aligned with how buyers want to work with sellers and what they need from sellers. So it's the stereotypical salesy behaviors that, you know, we know, you know, that we talked before, the show up and throw up, the pray and spray behaviors, the the pushy, the idea that your job in sales is to persuade somebody to buy something, which is not what it is. And so you can see the impact of selling out actually, I think, has become more prevalent in the last 10, 15 years. And we see it in just the impact on sales results. You know, the industry studies showing such a low percentage of sales reps that are attaining quota in B2B sales. You know, it's less than 50%. Now, obviously, not all about how they sell. There's some <laughs> games with how quotas are set. But in general, Forrester had a study about this. You know, win rates are down. Close rates are down. And part of that's an artifact that, that you know, people have leaned more into what I call selling out than, than what the buyers want. And the buyers are voting on that basically by the decisions they make. And so I'm just curious, yeah. was there a window of time where these things were working? Like, is there a reason that that sales training and sales methodology moved in this direction because it was working for a, for like a decade or something? And then everybody <laughs> said, oh, yeah, you know, what am I going to do to get you in a car today? And, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Certainly, I think when there's less competition in the marketplace, you know, when there are fewer tech companies and so on, as, as sellers, you know, could indulge in that behavior more because buyers didn't really have an alternative. But now mm-hmm. there's so much more competition out there in every segment that, <laughs> ironically, sellers are leaning into it as opposed to saying, huh, how do I really differentiate myself? Now, the thing is that top producers have always done the opposite of selling out, which is I call selling in. But yeah, I think there was a people that sort of lean towards selling out methodologies, you know, could get away with it and, you know, be good. You know, they wouldn't be top performers, but there was, you know, sort of the vast number of sellers sort of defaulted to that, that way of selling because they thought, yeah, it works. When it stopped working, they said, double down, push it harder. Well, but think about it. <laughs> Persuade more. Exactly. I mean, because look at, yeah. look at, look at how, you know, we have all this great technology that's come into sales and marketing over the last 10, 20 years, and look at how most companies are using it. I'm going to carpet bomb you with more emails. I'm going to reach out to you more, you know, with undifferentiated messaging. I'm going to, you know, fill your inbox and your voicemail. And it's like, really? (laughs) At a time when when the buyers are making it very clear, and this is not necessarily a a new thing, but it was talked about in the Challenger sale and there have been other studies said that buyers really do, the first line of differentiation is you, the seller. Buyers are buying you. Mm-hmm. Challenger sales said, I think it was about 53% of the buyer's decisions based on their buying experience with the seller. There's a Gartner study that came out, I forget when, within the last 10 years, that found that when buyers, the relationship the buyers feels most important is with the individual seller. The trust that they feel with a vendor is primarily with the seller more than with the organization that the seller represents. So you as an individual, you are the difference. Yeah, they are, at the end of the day, buying you. And this has been my experience has been throughout my career has been that is the case. You know, story after story of deals, large deals, like I said, seven, eight figure deals where the customer said, yeah, we bought because of you. And it's like, I wasn't, yeah, you know, obviously it's a team sale and I wasn't just, I was just the front person, right? I was, I was the one that they were interacting with. There are lots of, lots of people, nobody wins the sale alone, but it's those personal connections you have with the seller and with the buyer that 
really are decisive at the end of the day. So what's happened now is, in again, it's it's not the technology, it's why people are using it in a way that sort of I find ironic is because what you know so many people want to call quote unquote modern selling is really just slapping technology, the way they're using it, it's just slapping a layer of technology on bad sales behaviors and calling it modern. Mm-hmm. And if we really want to modernize selling, it's let's stop selling out. Let's stop these sales behaviors. We, it's a choice we make to, to do them. And let's go the opposite direction because they're not benefiting anybody. All right. I'm sorry, Andy. I wasn't listening. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I want to flip the script and talk about selling sure. in. You have a great framework here. So, so lean us into selling in and what that looks like. And, you know, so we've kicked the tires pretty hard on all the bad behaviors. So what's, what's the good stuff? Look? Well, so the, the good stuff is I've Outline the book I call the four pillars of selling in. So if you're not selling out, you're selling in. And it's yeah. based on connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And the difference between selling out and selling in is you know, selling out behaviors are learned behaviors. Selling in behaviors are innate human behaviors. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, Humans Are Underrated by Jeff Colvin, talking about the future of work. Mm-hmm. But he puts out, he says, you know, that those who succeed in the 21st century and going forward are those who are able to become more intensely human, right? It's to take the human attributes that machines can't readily replicate and accentuate those and become better at them. So when you look at these four pillars, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity, you know, we are wired as human beings to connect. We're social animals. You know, we want to connect with the people around us. We want to build connection or relationship with someone. We're wired to be curious. You know, it's our curiosity that enables us to navigate the world and navigate complex situations and begin to make sense of what's going on around us. You know, our understanding, again, is sort of that final layer of making sense of things, but our understanding also extends to our ability to empathize with other people because we understand the situation that they're in and why they feel the way they do. And we're wired to be generous. Again, we're social animals, we're tribal, we, we support each other, we give, and we give in part because it makes us feel good. So there's sort of a, a habitual reward cycle going on of when you give and get rewarded for it. And it's a way we provide value to our buyers. So, you know, these are just sort of four innate human behaviors that enable you to sell in a way that your buyers want to buy. You know, if your framework for selling is, well, my job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy my product, then you're going to take a certain set of actions, which are going to lean toward the selling out category. Because, you know, persuasion is sort of this coercive force, right? How do I force them? And look at the, the definition of the word persuasion is about, you know, how do I prevail upon force, you know, with force to get somebody to do something, which is not useful for the buyers at all. Whereas when you're selling in, what you're doing is you're, you're, if you think your job is, as it should be as a seller, say, my job is to understand what's most important to you. What is the most important thing to you in terms of maybe a challenge you have and an outcome you want to achieve? How can I help you get that? So if I go out into the world every day as a seller and my public facing <laughs> attitude is, I'm here to understand what's most important to you and help you get that. Now, nowhere in there does it say anything about my product or my service. I'm here to help you get what's most important to you. And if you go in with that approach, then you begin to have the, you put yourself in the ability or in the position where the buyer basically grants you permission to influence the choices and trade-offs that they make about how they're going to solve this problem. And that's the position you want to be in. So in the book, I draw a distinction between persuasion and influence. And this is where sellers need to lead. And how do you define the difference? I don't want to make an assumption about what the difference is between. Well, I think they're conflated. I mean, if you just look at the definitions of them, I mean, too often they're conflated by experts. Is And so, you know, per- persuasion is, again, it talks about, you know, prevailing by force of argument, right? I mean, it's coercion in the way it's used by most, most sellers. 
And that's of long standing, right? This is not a new development. I'll similar along the lines that I think as Jason joked about earlier, is, you know, how do I get you into this car by Friday? And that exists, right? And so <laughs> where influence talks about having an, an effect upon the thinking and actions of others. And that's that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to have a, an impact, an influence on the choices and trade-offs that, that buyers make to decide how to solve the problems and achieve their desired outcomes. So it's just, it's a different motion. And one is coming from force and others coming from helping and service. Andy, when I hear you talk, and maybe this is projection. <laughs> yes. You, you sound like this really healthy, psychologically self-actualized, confident <laughs> person, right? And a lot of people when it comes to sales and particularly in professional services, I don't think that the people that are selling in professional services have that level of comfort, if you will, in their own skin when they're in front of somebody because they see themselves as experts and they very much come with that. I need, I got to be right. You know, I I don't want to look stupid here. They're driven by this fear of looking stupid or not having the answer. Mm. And when you move to fear, you're under stress. Yeah. And when you're stressed, you're going to go to your comfortable stress behaviors. How do people learn to get into contact with these natural attributes of being human, as you said, of our wanting to relate and not letting this fear and stress get in the way because they got to hit a quota or they don't want to look stupid or they need to close this deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, ironically, in a professional services environment, it really should be easier because if you think you, about it, if you're selling yeah. a product, a defined product, then you sort of feel that fear, right? Because it's sort of a zero sum game. I mean, I'm going to, I have to either persuade you to, to buy this product, right? Or to sway your decision to fit this product, because that's my only alternative. Whereas in professional services, especially you know, a consulting firm, for instance, you know, I'm just, I don't know. We don't have a fixed solution. We are bringing our resources to be able to help yeah. identify the problem you have, help you understand that, and then help you achieve a certain outcome. That's perfectly aligned with selling in. That's the only thing they should be doing in a professional service environment because you're not flogging a product. You're helping the buyer you know, consider and understand better what their challenge is, right? It's the first job of consulting, help you understand what your problem is. Second is, well, what's the solution we can bring together? And so if you don't have a you know, have invested millions of dollars in developing a hardware software product. It's just what's best for the client at that point. So, you know, if you're a professional services seller or consultant, I've you know, had a consulting business for 20 years. I'm not pushing a specific solution. I'm, you know, at the end of the day, it's what's going to work best for the buyer. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. You know, I'm a huge believer that, you know, and there's an old saying attributed to Voltaire, which, you know, judge a man on his questions, not on, you know, what he knows type thing is, yeah, I learned early in my career. Yeah, I was, my first job out of college, so I started selling these room full of computing equipment to, I was selling to the construction industry for a company called Burroughs, which is now Unisys, or who knows what it's called these days. But at the time, it was the second largest computer company in the world. And so, yeah, my first job out of school was, I was selling computers for accounting applications to the construction industry. I was 21, I looked 16, and I was talking to CEOs and, entrepreneurs that founded these successful companies. And yeah, after a while, I was, you know, I was, had success fairly quickly and, and 
I start thinking, well, why, why is this happening? And it's like, oh, because I'm just, I'm in there sincerely interested in them and asking questions. And I knew nothing. But when people sense that you're truly interested in them, they'll give you their time. They'll give you their attention. They'll, they'll help you learn. I mean, it's not like you have to come in and know everything. And so, yeah, as you start selling, you know, bigger, more complex things, there's a certain level of knowledge you want to have, but you should never feel at a disadvantage that you don't know something. That's actually, to me, that's, that's an opportunity to dig deeper and learn something more because for many people, they have this level of knowledge and then they never challenge that level of knowledge, right? They don't, they just sort of assume they know what's going on and they miss opportunities. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, you know, a very simple thing about, you know, when you're doing, it's not necessarily discovery, but when you're questioning the buyer, you're trying to understand something is where most sellers drop off is they don't go deep enough with follow-up questions to really keep digging. And there's, yeah, follow-up questions are the easiest thing in the world to ask. I'll listen to recordings, phone calls with sellers. And it's like, you asked one question, then went to the next question on your list. And the customer wanted you to dig deeper, right? They want to tell you more. They're not going to volunteer it. They want you to to dig for it. And so it's just, just very simple questions you can ask like, oh, that's interesting. So, and what else can you tell me about that? You can ask that and follow up to anything. And so you should never feel like at a loss. It's like, I don't know, really. I don't understand what they're just saying. I don't, you know, I'm not really sure. Well, too many sellers just sort of give up at that point, right? Because they're afraid to ask that next question. To your point, I, to say, I don't know. That's powerful to a buyer to say, I admit you don't know. And to have the intellectual curiosity to be open-minded to say, well, what else can you tell me about that? What else can you, you can ask that question two or three times in a row. And what else can you tell me about that? And then when you've done that is, you know, reflect back to the buyers. Okay, well, let, let me repeat back to you. I think I just heard. Did I get that right? And then here's the part that sellers always miss, which is when the customer says, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, you've got it. Then you say, okay, so what are we missing? Just when you think you know everything, you ask the buyer, so what are we missing with that? And then you take it that next level down again, because they're thinking, oh, yeah, what are we missing? Because you're challenging assumptions all the way around. This is how you, you know, engage with a buyer at a level that they want to deal with. Because then you're helping them understand, right? When you're challenging the customer with questions that they perhaps hadn't really thought of before, you're adding a lot of value to them. And so there's no no reason to feel shy about asking questions. Yeah, I've never had a, a customer tell me, yeah, enough with the questions. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So you said something that made me picture in my mind of a a salesperson that is trying this selling in wardrobe on, if you will. I call that being human. Yeah. 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 Or allowing the human to come out. Trying to be human for the first time. (laughs) Allowing the humanness to come out because they've probably been trained to not do that, right? They've been trained in some technique or methodology, right? Mm-hmm. To control the conversation to to go. But I have this image of if somebody's all in on the selling out and mm-hmm. that's what they do, I can see that. I can see somebody all in on selling in, but there's somebody in there that may be in the selling out 
now trying on the selling in and not fully committing one way or the other. It's almost like you're standing in the middle of the road and you're going to get hit by a car. You have to pick one side or the other, it seems to me. Well, think about it as a journey, right? If you perceive these as mindsets, right? So mindsets come in pairs. You know, you have a fixed mindset or growth mindset, open mindset, closed mindset. And picture them at opposite ends of a spectrum. We're all a mix of these. So yeah, I mean, no one's all selling in and no one's all selling out. You know, so it's really what's the arc of our trajectory from one direction to the other. It's really important. Hmm. And, you know, I talk about that in the book is I have a chart that sort of compares selling out, selling in and say, you know, just starting point. These are the two polar opposites. You know, where do you sit? Just put a mark on a line and, and say, okay, so what do I need to do to move the direction I want to go? That's a starting point. You know, the next thing is there's a certain number of these behaviors that I call selling out that you can just stop. It's, you wouldn't call it behavior change. Just, just stop, right? I mean, Jonah Berger in his book, The Catalyst, he's a professor at Wharton and interviewed him on my podcast. And I refer to him in the book as, this is a book about persuasion, but he has research that he cites in the book that shows that humans are universally resistant to being persuaded. 100%. You know, we, we all resist being persuaded. So it makes sense that we spend billions of dollars a year to train sellers to persuade our buyers to buy something. I mean, that's that's one that's like, a, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing that? Because, yeah, I guarantee you, you know, there's one question a buyer will never ask you. You know what that question is? I have a statement. Please persuade me to buy your product. Well, <laughs> what, a buyer, what a buyer will never ask you is I'll say, you know, Jason really like your product and we'd really like to buy it from you, but we got a problem. The problem is you're just not salesy enough. Could you be more salesy? <laughs> <laughs> Never going to happen because there's no value to you or the buyer for you being salesy. Just none at all. And so, yeah, you can just stop a lot of it because a, it doesn't work. You think you've been told it works. It doesn't work. Yeah. You think about it. You know, we've, I give this example a lot and people are probably tired of hearing about it. And I talk about it on my show a lot too, is, you know, in the SaaS world is it's very common for companies on average to have like a, a win rate in the 20 to 25% range. So meaning have their most qualified opportunities in their pipeline, they're closing one out of five or one out of four of them. And why? Right. As I tell people, it's like, okay, well, if practice makes perfect, if you have that win rate, what are your sellers practicing doing? Losing. Getting very good at it too. I mean, if you're if practice makes perfect and you're losing three quarters of your opportunities, you're getting good practice at losing. Doesn't need to be that way. But yeah, if you think that everything is about process, if you think everything is about a sales-centric motion to the buyer, you're gonna end up there. So it's actually it's pretty easy for people to make the decision to say, I'm just gonna stop this. It it yeah, I said we're all a mix, right? So <laughs> I've been in situations where I took over a division of a company that, yeah, we just stopped cold. We just stopped. We weren't going to do that anymore. We weren't going to sell out anymore. And it was a little painful for about 90 days because we had to sort of adjust timeframes. It's not like deals didn't, you know, they're not like deals stretched out all of a sudden, but it's, it's like, yeah, we weren't going to indulge in some of the behaviors that we'd done before to, you know, trash the relationship we had with buyers in order just to bring a deal in in June that we we're going to get in July anyway. Right. And cause that's, that is prototypically selling out. You know, the manager saying, you know, you go out, build a relationship with a client. I've had this happen to me when I was early in my careers. 
you know, build a good connection, relationship, trust with a customer. And then your manager says, you're going to get the deal this week, right? Well, no, they're going to, they're going to sign it next week. No, it needs to come in this week. End of the month. So what? Right. It's you're going to get the deal Monday. Instead, you go out and you give these people a big discount. You give away 10, 20 margin points in order to bring a deal in two days early. Really? Who gives a shit? In the meantime, what you've done is you've exposed to the buyer that you're not really there to help them. You're just there to get an order. Mm -hmm. And they know that they'll still give you the order. But from that point forward, they're going to churn quickly. They're under no illusion as to who you are and what your motivations are. So, you know, we do this routinely where, you know, we go out with the best of intentions or a seller goes out with the best of intention. And then you get to the end of a period and you just trash it. And people wonder why customers churn quickly or why you're having to rebuild trust after you get an order, which is crazy. Well, we're coming up on time. So I kind of want to put you on the spot a little bit around just, and you've hinted at this a little bit, but what's some advice you have? Because you know, when I think about these, this continuum you've described, mm. I think what my, my gut is what happens is that I'll speak from personal experience. You embrace this sort of selling in philosophy, but occasionally you, 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 you fall into persuade mode. You don't even know you did mm. it. And all of a sudden you, and you can reflect on it and go, how did that happen? Yep. So like, I guess, what advice do you have for, for folks that are trying to unlearn lots of bad learned behaviors? <laughs> how would you suggest that they navigate that? What are some tips or tricks? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, you want to lean into the the science of habit change. And so mm-hmm. habits, you know, certain behaviors, habitual behaviors, which were ruled by our, our habits in a, a day-to-day basis. I forget what percentage of our daily actions are, are habit-based, but it's high fraction. You know, it's well above 50%. But what the science of habit change says is that habits are triggered, right? There's something happened that there's a trigger for a habit. And Habits then sort of rule you because you get this emotional impulse to to do something, to act in a certain way, and and you do that. And what you have to understand is, you know, to change habits is that you actually have a choice of how you can act. You can you can say, look, yeah, I get this trigger, and you know, maybe it's the customer asking me, so what do you do, right? For most sellers, that's a trigger to go, wow, <laughs> let me give you a pitch. <laughs> Whereas yeah. the right thing to do is, well, ask a question back to the buyer, right? What's been on your mind recently? You know, what can we help you with? You know, something. So you have to see after in that moment, sort of say, whoops, just take a beat. I have a choice. I'm going to act now. I can do this, A, or I can do B. Now, if I do A, you know, it takes me on one path. If I do B, I may experience a different outcome. And that different outcome is going to feel good. So I'm going to do B the next time I do that, right? Because I get the reward. Because it's, you know, the habit loop, as Duhigg talks about. Mm. And so building in that reward is important you'll experience that. So it's really knowing that you have a choice at all time and you have to make, you know, pause and give yourself the chance to make a choice. So it's, you know, you got a trigger, you have that emotional impulse, pause and acknowledge you have a choice and then choose a different behavior. Yeah. And I like that. it has to be conscious and it should fit with sellers because the thing about sales, if you want to be good at selling is you have to act with intent at all times. Everything you do has to be intentional. You know, if you're just, going with the flow and doing what you always do, then that's not acting with intent and you'll never achieve success at the level that you want or you desire. So yeah, making the right choice is about intent and it aligns with what you should be doing as a seller anyway, is always acting with intent, always understanding why you're taking any particular action. Well, this was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate you taking the time well, thank you for to me. share 
your thinking and, you know, a, a sneak preview on, on the soon to be best-selling book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. World best-selling book. Yes. No, I appreciate world, that. World. We decided to skip the New York Times. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, no, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk. And yeah, if I can just, you know, a little pitch for the book coming out in February. Absolutely. If you visit my website, andypaul.com, you can, well, first of all, you can pre-order the book at any of your favorite booksellers online. But if you want to get a sample of the book, come to my website, andypaul.com. You can download a free chapter and get a sense of what the book is about. And if you'd pre-order the book, come back to andypaul.com. We've got some bonuses that you can claim for people that pre-order, including some exclusive events with me where I'll answer your questions about how to sell in. And presumably those uh, all run out at the end of June unless with a 10% push on top, <laughs> That's right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, someday I'd, I'd, yeah, I've got a list of stories about things. And I refer to one in the book you know, about, I mean, selling out, here's the ultimate selling out stories. Relatively early in my career and I had a customer that coming to the end of the year, I'd made my number, you know, I was done for the year, but the CEO wanted this next order and this customer was going to give us a big order. It was either going to happen in December, January, but CEO wanted it in December. And the client said they were going to fax it to us, but they were shutting down between Christmas and New Year's and didn't come before Christmas Eve. So CEO made me call this gentleman who actually be in Chicago at home on Christmas Eve when they're opening presents oh with his six kids. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> and I heretofore had a really good relationship with the guy. And this was, yeah, it was never the same. And within about a year or so, they started giving some of their business to somebody else. And it was largely due to this. We just shot ourselves in the foot for no good reason. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah I've, <laughs> I've worked at <laughs> public companies in charge of sales. I understand the need to, to hit your commitments, but there's a way to do it. And it doesn't always have to result in or come from, you know, indulging and selling out behaviors that I said, just trash a relationship with your buyers. And your sellers, and your sellers, your sellers hate it as well. I mean, that's that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great story, and it's perfectly timely since this is, I think, our last episode to drop around the hall before the. And it was somebody in Chicago (laughs) as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's like if you're listening to this and you're thinking about that deal, you want to get done before end of year, you might want to pause, (laughs) think twice. Well, bring it in November. That'd be a better, a better thing. Is yeah, once you get into the habit of doing this, and I told that one company we just stopped and it was <laughs> and it was the same company. Yeah, there's a little bit of an adjustment period, but you know, we suddenly didn't rely on you know the selling out behaviors to to make our numbers. Well, thank you, Andy. Appreciate you joining us. Jason, thank you. Jeff, as always, a pleasure. Yeah. Good luck with the book. Thank you. I'm gonna pre-order my copy today. Excellent. Thank cool. you. And I'll put a link in the show notes. So everybody will have a quick access to Andy's site and pre-order the book. And listen to my podcast too. Absolutely. Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, wherever you buy podcasts. Find your podcast. (laughs) Wherever your podcasts are born. All right. Cool, guys. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Andy. Hey. See you, Jeff. Thank you. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.